Welcome to Tentpole Trauma, the podcast where we look at movies that came with hype and high hopes, but left with crushing disappointment, either critically, at the box office, or both. Freed from the weight of expectations, we seek to examine these underperformers under a new light, parsing through the good, the bad, and everything in between with the hopes of gaining a better understanding as to why they failed to find their audience. Warning, there will be spoilers, so if you haven't seen the movie that we're discussing today, I suggest you stop the podcast and go watch it. Then when you come back and listen, you'll get more out of the discussion. On this episode, we discuss Treasure Planet. Sebastian and I am back here with Richard. Ahoy, permission to come aboard. You have permission. We are continuing our double Disney debacle with a discussion of Treasure Planet. Richard and I already discussed uh, Atlantis the Lost Empire in the previous edition of this edition of Tentpole Trauma. <laughs> you can hear that in the archives wherever it is. Um, but yes, we have more to discuss because after Atlantis, the Lost Empire, the next year, in fact, they released Treasure Planet, which was an even bigger financial failure for the studio. Mm. But before we get to that, whenever Richard is on, I like to have him plug one of his projects because he is a very talented comic book writer. So Richard, what do you have to plug this episode? Well, thank you. I'm still plugging uh, Fear Book Club that uh, came out earlier this year. It's through Aftershock Comics. 
It's a book that's aimed at kids, but honestly, anyone can read it. Uh, it's very Amblin-y in its style. So if you're uh, maybe more like my age or Sebastian's age and you love things like Goonies and E.T. and all the other great Amblin films, I think you'll like this. And it's, uh, it's a scary story for kids about a middle school yearbook club. They find out their uh, middle school is haunted. They're the only ones who can see these ghosts. And the ghosts are spirits of former students who have uh, died in the past, one student each year. They've gone missing. And um, if our yearbook club doesn't figure out the secret behind that mystery, they are going to be doomed to join them. Uh, his beautiful art by a, a very talented Italian man named Marco Matrone. And uh, Sebastian, I'm doing a special offer for the uh, Temple Trauma listeners. If they uh, pick up the book and uh, find me and follow me on Twitter and give me a proof of purchase, I will send them one of these nifty uh, book plates that uh, has my signature and is personalized. I'll even do a little sketch on there for you if you like. Um, so just please find me at Regards Richard and uh, thank you in advance for checking out the book. It's a lot of fun. It sounds a little bit like something that people who enjoyed Stranger Things, especially their early seasons, would also enjoy. Yeah, you know, I should have just said that. that that's way better. <laughs> If you like Stranger Things, you'll like Fear Book Club. I think that's how all projects should be pitched from now on, is their relation to Stranger Things. And yeah. that's how you get shit sold these days. But we're not here to talk about Stranger Things. We're here to talk about Treasure Planet from 2002, based, of course, on Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson. This film is directed by John Musker and Ron Clements. And one thing I was interested to learn was that this was pitched way back in the 80s uh, with The Little Mermaid because I believe they also uh, did The Little Mermaid. Yeah, they've, they've done a bunch of hits for Disney, Little Mermaid, Aladdin, and they're still at it. They did Moana recently. And, um, you know, according to IMDb, I think they're attached to do an animated movie of the Metal Men for DC Comics, which would be amazing. Well, good. I'm glad that they are still working because they are very deserving of that honor. This movie is an anachronistic space opera. It's basically Star Wars in a sense, but set in like a pirate setting, which sounds good to me. If you're pitching this to me, I do think that this is the kind of idea probably you can only really pull off in a cartoon. I don't know if this is something that you could sell to people in live action. Other than uh, ice pirates. Right. They, they tried. <laughs> but there's your next episode, by the way. And I kind of enjoy ice pirates for all its flaws. So you look, hey, I'm into it. You know, no, there's no denying that. But I do think, you know, Joe Lunchpail, my um, fictional <laughs> <laughs> straw man that I've invented who has opinions on movies, he probably wouldn't uh, be going for this. Joe Lunchpail isn't isn't having having uh, literal space pirates here. John Q. Moviegoer. <laughs> yes. So the movie opens with a telling of uh, this alien pirate who goes around uh, robbing luxury liners and whatnot. What's the pirate's name? I think it's Flint. Yes, Flint. And he's, you know, this kind of cool looking alien. And, you know, we're seeing him sort of attack a ship in pirate style. But we pull back and we realize that this is all being read from a book by our main character, Jim Hawkins, 
we're seeing him here as a little boy and he's just very taken with pirate adventures and whatnot. And he's got this cool pop-up book that's also like a hologram book. And his mom comes in, who is voiced by Laurie Metcalf, and allows him to finish reading up the story, but then sort of puts him to bed and, you know, placates his love of pirates, but treats it all as, you know, kid stuff. It doesn't take it very seriously, but he stays up and continues reading. So we know that a pirate's life is for him, so to speak. What did you feel about this setting? I think it's um, it's a strong opening. It does kind of a nice reveal where you think you're seeing a sort of a, a typical pirate story and then you find out you're in space. The designs of the ships are really cool. They have these sails that are, I guess, supposed to be like light sails. They have neat patterns on them. And, um, you know, I think it's kind of a, a nice way that they pull out of this, what's essentially a flashback to this, this pirate's life. And you see Jim is enjoying it kind of like on his retro piratey themed iPad. The production design, both in kind of outer space and the pirate ships and also like in Jim's room, it's really neat. I, I think by and large, the movie does a great job of blending two pretty different tastes, you know sci-fi and, and pirate. And it's funny, um, just to sort of quickly compare it to Atlantis, this opening grabber uh, is more effective than the one we got in Atlantis. It's far less confusing. We we understand what's going on. It does set up something that's going to come back in the story and provides some useful kind of context. So yeah, it works for me. Who doesn't love like a little kid reading a storybook framing device? You know, we loved it in Princess Bride or whatever, and we like it here. It works. It sets the stage nicely. Yeah, he's reading it under the covers. The book is illuminated, so you see a shadow. And, uh, you know, there's no no dad in the picture in Jim's life, so that's kind of set up. And also this mystery of how the pirate Flint would get around the cosmos so quickly and right. be robbing all these different ships all over the universe. It seemed impossible that any one pirate could travel that much distance that quickly. So there's a cool mystery set up there too. Yeah. And Jim even says like, how did he do it? How did he sweep in out of nowhere and disappear? And, and mom is just like, Oh, Jim, you know, who cares or <laughs> whatever. <laughs> I do really enjoy Laurie Metcalf's performance as the mother she's very likable she's not really scolding him or whatever but she is trying to you know be the mother and get him to bed and whatnot i think she does a really good job of walking the line of being like a concerned mom and later she's going to be even more concerned but she never comes off as the mom that you don't like yeah she's not a nag she's great in this but then we cut to the present day of our story and we are now introduced to teenage Jim Hawkins as voiced by future superstar uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. JGL, as we all, as all the kids say, <laughs> who's perfectly cast here. His voice is perfect for this character. Um, I also appreciate that he hasn't done his more recent thing of doing his more manly lower voice. I feel like at some point, JGL thought he sounded too much like a kid and so he sort of deliberately lowered his voice in a sort of over-practiced sort of way and here he still sounds like a teenager and he fits the bill here now i must say though that the design of jim hawkins at this stage is so 90s skater kid the hair yeah the hair is like floppy 
and he's got like a little rat tail in the back <laughs> and it's almost painfully 90s and i and i feel like maybe by 2002 this would have been a little bit eye rolling even for teenagers i think maybe they were trying to evoke sort of like a, a futuristic cabin boy look you know where like a cabin boy might have his hair in a ponytail but the the whole the whole thing it it doesn't work and i think just watching the movie today the hairdo's pretty distracting it's a barrier for entry it's like skater kid meets a cabin boy (laughs) i mean it sounds great on paper but uh yeah i I will say though as as god as problematic as that hairdo is um it's a great opening scene he's like kind of on this um space-faring windsurf board and it's just really cool animation i think we talked about in the Atlantis episode, we were talking about the Tarzan movie and how that was inspired by extreme sports. And this one definitely seems to be taking a cue from like skydiving videos and, you know, people were like surfing as they're skydiving. I think it's a really exciting sequence and following the opening, it's like a really good one-two punch. I feel hooked. I really, really like this rocket powered sailboard that he's got. It is cool. I mean, I'm sure at the time when this movie was released, I would have thought it was kind of, you know, a little too pandering to skate culture maybe or extreme sports or whatever but now as a beaten old man i'm like oh, that's, that's actually kind of cool like <laughs> i wish i could do that i've had all that sort of taste beaten out of me and at this point i'm like you know what that looks like a lot of fun. I'd love to be young and doing that kind of dangerous shit again. And I do agree that the animation here is really fun. And, you know, he's going through all these sort of like structures and whatnot and just zipping through it, you know, high speeds and having a good time and whooping it up. And then he gets pulled over for speeding <laughs> by these two like humorous rowboat cops and he's brought back to the inn where his mom works or owns the inn right she's the innkeeper that's right yeah the benbo inn but she's you know she's serving food and everything she's basically running this whole place by herself and he gets brought in by the police who sort of humorously you know present him as being a total loser (laughs) you know his mom is troubled by this more sort of reckless teenage behavior he's been displaying as of late yeah it's not the first time it's happened and again when we were talking about atlantis the opening of that felt so much like stargate and this part of the opening feels a lot to me like the opening of the um, jj abrams star trek where totally. you know, Jim Kirk is, and I know Treasure Planet came first, but I mean, it's there, there are some really similar moments there. And the fact that he doesn't have a father figure around and that's why he's acting out. I mean, I, I wonder if J.J. Abrams is a fan of Treasure Planet. I don't wonder. I'm sure he is. And by bringing that up, I think you are landing on a kind of important point. And I think that despite the fact that these movies didn't do well And you sort of mentioned this in the um, Atlantis review about how animators refer to Atlantis and stuff like that now. These movies had an impact. And I do think J.J. Abrams absolutely saw this movie and was like, hey, I'm going to lift that for my Star Trek. That's actually really good. Because, yeah, he gets pulled over by a robot cop and that. It's funny. I mean, Treasure Planet did worse than Atlantis financially, but I would say it has an even bigger impact like in the animation community now. It's referenced 
all the time. I was just working on a project this year and everyone kept talking about treasure planet. And I mean, really? the, yeah, the, the, um, uh, Marco, the artist on my uh, uh, Fear Book Club graphic novel, he and I are developing a new project that is about pirates. Take my money. Yeah. <laughs> Marco lives all the way in Naples, Italy, and, and he this is a major touch point for us, and we reference it all the time. So it's it's got a legacy. That's cool. One thing that we are introduced to in this scene in the inn is all these colorful alien characters. There's this one woman who's like sort of this octopus alien who's demanding her juice and getting more and more frustrated that she's being ignored. And, um, you know, there's this family that's eating grubs or whatever and all this stuff. And we're also introduced to the character of Dr. Doppler, who is voiced by David Hyde Pierce in almost a perfect bit of casting. And, you know, he's going to be sort of the scientist character, I guess you would say, um, that sort of archetype. I'm not that familiar with the source material. I do plan on reading it at some point. I might have read it when I was much younger and don't remember much of it, but... You know, I, I know all of these characters are just analogs from that, you know, and I think they literally have the same names and stuff, or the names are slightly changed in some cases. But it's a fun group of characters, and their designs are fun, kind of alien meets Disney animals, I'd say, kind of a mixture of the two in a lot of cases. Yeah, it, it's a really fun world. You know, we're we're on a planet now, so it's it's terrestrial and it has sort of like a pirate theme to it. Like the inn looks like a, one you'd find in a seaside town. But all these aliens are just really fun to look at. They're all doing silly things and uh, yeah, it's just good classic Disney animation. Yeah, the anachronistic element of it is enjoyable, if not a little bit hard to explain or justify you know because they are literally wearing like 1700s clothing breeches shoes with buckles and whatnot (laughs) yet there's like spaceships flying around that look like old schooners and whatnot so it is cool and novel and fun but i can also see why maybe it was a little bit of a hard sell. Yeah, I, I have to think that was part of the reason why it took so long for for them to get this movie made, because they just kept pitching it and pitching it, and Disney was sort of dangling it like a carrot to them, like, all right, we'll do do Atlantis, and then maybe after Atlantis you can do Treasure Planet. Like, all right, no, do Hercules for us. All right, now you can do Treasure Planet. I don't know that pirate movies were, were necessarily in vogue in the, the mid-'80s when they originally pitched it, but I think they were even less so by the uh, early 2000s when this came out. I don't think the Pirates of the Caribbean movies had come out yet. Those are still a couple years off, right? Right, and as you pointed out in the previous episode, this was written by Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio, who wrote right. the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. So clearly they continued on with their love of pirate adventures and to more success and with Disney uh, a few years after this. So they were not deterred. I bet that was in development before this came out. And they just managed to get it through. I guess so. Because you would think after this came out, they would have shut it down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, God, it, it's hard to believe that they're even like in the, the same decade 
they're so different. One was so successful and one unfortunately wasn't. So yeah, what happens, there's a spaceship crash near the inn and this sort of turtle-like pirate character, Billy Bones, who is voiced by the great Patrick McGowan in his final role, like Jim Varney. Uh, this was the last role of a famous actor. Jim, you know, helps him out of the ship and he comes crawling out of the ship with this sphere that's a map and he tells Jim, like, beware of the cyborg who's after this map. Jim brings him inside and, you know, tries to explain things to his mother and get his mother to help this poor dying turtle pirate. But then the pirates uh, all show up and they burn down the inn. Kind of a bummer. And uh, Jim and uh, Dr. Doppler and mom, like, basically like escape out the window as we're seeing these sort of shadowy figures of the pirates burning down the inn. And it's funny because later on we're going to meet the character of John Silver, who is the cyborg in question. Jim is going to basically sort of take him as a father figure ultimately um, because as you pointed out, Jim's father, I think we're to assume he was like a sailor or whatever. And he just, I don't know, went off to sea one day and never came home. It's never really clarified necessarily. Not that it needs to be, but we don't really ever find out why dad never came home. They, he's not dead. He just didn't come home. He, he went out for a burger on a pirate ship and <laughs> yeah. just never came back. Yeah. It's kind of a sad sort of flashback later. You know, they, they're sort of kind of hiding the ball on who the identity of the cyborg is. Um, but since there's only one cyborg character in this entire movie, it becomes clear pretty soon that it's it's Long John Silver. Now, I know that Long John Silver kind of makes it up to Jim by the end of the movie, but I did struggle a little bit as their relationship is developing. I know I'm getting ahead of myself here, but like he burned down Jim's mom's in like it's pretty horrible I, I think we're meant to assume that that jim isn't sure that long john silver is the cyborg you know who right. burnt it down but i don't know it, it is a bit of a stretch i think if they had a few more cyborg red herrings in there maybe that would have helped they all go to dr doppler's house to re regroup and it's there that jim um realizes that he can open this map sort of like one opens the lament configuration boxes in Hellraiser <laughs> and we get this sort of laser map that projects onto the wall or into the air or whatever. It's pretty cool. Again, made me think of what they find in The Force Awakens by J.J. Abrams. Oh my God. Who Definitely didn't see this movie. That's right. But there is a MacGuffin that projects a map onto the Millennium Falcon wall or whatever. J.J. Abrams, biggest Treasure Planet fan of them all. During this whole sequence, you know, Jim wants to go and find Treasure Planet because the map reveals the location of the famed uh, legendary Treasure Planet. Mom doesn't want Jim to go find it because it sounds awfully dangerous. But uh, Dr. Doppler does kind of want to go find it he's got a taste for adventure and uh you know he's an astronomer and you know so he's got a vested interest in proving this planet is there i guess and uh he agrees to bankroll this trip to treasure planet did we say that treasure planet is connected to the the pirate flint from the, the opening scene like it, it's supposed to contain the the loot of what is it the loot of a thousand galaxies that's a really fun idea. Like not yeah. just a pirate 
treasure on an island, but like a whole planet of treasure. Yeah. That's up in the stakes. Now, one little detail that I noticed on this viewing that I didn't even notice before, and this sort of calls back to the previous episode that we did where I was talking about how there are quick little details that then matter later. Jim is the only one who knows how to open the map. Right. And so later he's going to use that as a bargaining tool to sort of keep himself in the story, so to speak. But like, yeah, I didn't catch that. He's the only one who knows how to like activate this sphere so that the map will be shown. And maybe I'm not remembering it, but it's a little unclear why he's the only one who who can do it. You know, like there's no, I mean, he's just kind of holding it in his hand and he maybe pushes a button and it opens up. Yeah, it's just he's figured out how to trigger it and he doesn't show anybody else how to do it. But I mean, it does sort of figure a little bit into his character because Jim feels like he's not particularly useful and, you know, he feels like he's a fuck up and he's not doing things right. And he's sort of insecure about his worth in situations and what's going to become of him and all of that. So I think it's just a little detail to sort of hint to us like, no, Jim is capable and competent. He just doesn't believe in himself yet. Right. And we know, we know he's a good guy deep down because he you know cares for the, the Billy Bones character when he, I do kind of think that Jim's sort of insecurities while being completely believable and endearing, aren't really that justified by what we see on screen. I mean, I know we're to understand that he's gotten into trouble before and mom says he didn't do well at school, but like, we don't even see what school means in this world. Like it's just mentioned. And then Jim's like pouting up on the roof or whatever, when the Billy bones, spaceship crashes, we don't really see what school means or what it means to do bad in school when you live in space pirate world. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> what does that exactly mean? Like what are on the tests? And he he just doesn't seem that bad of a kid, you know. And I know you know we want to keep him sympathetic or whatever, but he's not even as bad as Captain Kirk is in the Star Trek movie you referenced. You know, he's he's a good kid. He's fine. Don't feel so bad about yourself, Jim. I think you're hitting on something big here because so much of the rest of the movie hinges on this like surrogate father-son relationship between Silver and Jim. Parts of it I think are really great. Other parts of it don't quite land for me. And I think it's because we don't really get to feel like that loss in Jim's life before. We don't really see what the problem is. Like he misbehaves a little, but you know, him zipping around on that windsurf thing was cool. It didn't look like he was doing anything terrible. You know, he just broke like, no. the speed limit or something. So I, I, I think there's a little bit of a, a gap between that and the fact that he feels like a loser in the entire universe just because, you know, his, his dad wasn't around or something. Yeah, and I don't feel the absence of the dad is necessarily hammered on as much as it needs to be. It's there, but I don't really fully feel it. It doesn't really get sort of landed upon heavily until later during the montage with Long John Silver, which is set to a regrettable Johnny Resnick of Goo Goo Dolls pop song. I I like the montage, but the pop song, it's it's rough. I mean, I was not a fan of the Goo Goo Dolls, and uh, it's such an obvious redo of their one big hit that they had that, like, nobody knows who I am. This one, like, has similar <laughs> lyrics, and it's about, you know, nobody understands who I am, that kind of thing again. I mean, I get it. 
it's the late 90s when they're putting this together. He's a big songwriter. I understand the commercial appeal at the time, but and ultimately, unfortunately, hurts what I think is a pretty decent montage. Well, you know, I think we talked about this before, maybe it was before we started recording, but, um, you know, some movies you can sort of feel like the studio interference. You can feel the notes in yeah. it. And, and I, I feel like Treasure Planet, unfortunately, was noted to death. And I think part of it is probably based on the, the performance of Atlantis that we talked about before. It, it didn't do so well. And here, less than a year later, they've got a very similar kind of movie for a very similar audience coming out. And so there's just parts of this movie that don't quite add up. Yeah. And I feel like there was probably a lot more earlier of Jim not having a father. And I get the sense that it was cut out either for time or because maybe they felt like it was too much of a downer for, for test audiences. But right. if they did have that, you kind of wonder what how the movie would perform now if they did insert that stuff back in, because I think it would actually make it the emotional stuff a lot stronger later. Let's talk a little bit about the ship they charter. Dr. Doppler and Jim uh, go to uh, this port city or whatever i forget what it's called it's a cool sort of design it looks like a crescent moon or whatever it's like a space station sort of spaceport dr doppler has comically purchased this ridiculous sort of like diving bell style spacesuit that um is an embarrassment to jim and an embarrassment to Dr. Doppler himself. <laughs> you know, there's some good sort of kids comedy going on here. You mean the uh, the alien that talks in fart sounds? Well, of course, we got to talk about the alien that talks in fart sounds. Now, have you uh, road tested this alien with your own children to see if the farts worked for them? I know your kids are too old for this now, but... I don't know that they'd ever be too old for this kind of humor. Um, <laughs> they, I saw it with uh, my wife and, and our younger son, Ben, who's, um, he saw it a little while ago, he was about 10. This was kind of the part where he tuned out, strangely enough. <laughs> huh. he, he, he was with the movie up until this point, and I remember my wife saying, this is really weird, and then they just they kind of gave up on it, which is a shame because there's a lot of great stuff that comes afterwards. But again, it's like I feel like there's sort of a studio interference going on here where you know we, we start with kind of some straight-up action, and it's pretty cool, and now we're getting into the farting aliens, and I, I feel like... Disney's trying to lighten it up and trying to add a lot more comedy because Atlantis didn't have a ton of comedy in it. It didn't do so well. So I'm just speculating here, but that's the sense I get. Well, I know that if my wife had been watching this with me, she would have loved the farting alien because (laughs) she still thinks that farts are hilarious. So it would have worked on her. Sadly, she was not watching it with me. But we do get introduced to some more colorful characters. The captain of the ship, Captain Smollett, I believe her name is, is voiced by Emma Thompson. And she's sort of this feline alien. She's kind of a cool design. A little bit weird to look at because her face is kind of elongated and flat and her eyes are really narrow. And her and uh, Dr. Doppler are going to sort of form a romance but dr doppler is sort of based on a dog design later at the very end of the movie we're going to see their children which i'm wondering like what is this nightmarish creature that's going to emerge from the fusing of dog and cat genes but they sidestep that issue by just having some of the kids be cats and then one kid is a dog but 
you know, I had questions about how that was going to yeah, work. I, I, I don't care. They're abominations. All four of those kids. <laughs> it's really, it's a weird choice. Really weird choice. I mean, it does raise a question that, you know, like the Star Wars franchise never dared to address is like, what happens when aliens of different species fall in love and have children? Like what results of those pairings? Well, I don't I don't have a problem with that if like the aliens look so different than any creatures that we have here on Earth. But I know dogs, I know cats, I love each of them, but I would never want to genetically engineer some sort of forbidden hybrid between the two of them. But that's just me. I would want to do it. (laughs) (laughs) And all that said, those four mongrels still aren't the most disturbing thing in this movie to me. What is the most disturbing thing in this movie to you? Uh, It's a character we meet soon called uh, Morph, which is um, this floating, shape-shifting gob of like chewed up meat and and the color of it it's like almost pornographically pink this thing really creeps me out i i don't know if it's just me but it really grosses me out to me morph seems like a a cartoon character developed for an advertising of like a soap bubble scrub or something (laughs) he basically just looks like bubbles with eyeballs to it and he's clearly designed to be the fun character that all the kids like and he's called morph because he can literally morph into the image of anything which is going to result in a lot of hilarity and mishaps throughout the story but i'm with you i find morph to be just sort of irritating it looks to me like uh you know like how some tumors they cut them out of people and and then they they have like they find there's like teeth growing in it or hair or like an eye (laughs) sort of like the dark half i don't know that's just what i get from this thing it really all due respect to all the talented artists who who worked on morph this thing's nightmare fuel we should um take the morph idea and rewrite it as a horror movie and just have it you know be this nightmarish pink glob that takes on horrifying physical characteristics of people it's rubbing against people and and like you know just their faces and at one point it turns itself into a a pie and and throws itself into a bad guy's face and then but i'm like it's still morph's body that's all over this guy's face well why don't we move on to morph's owner i guess Uh, and that is the character of long john silver or just john silver in the case of this movie he is voiced by um brian murray who's got a great voice it perfectly matches this character design so the deal is um they've boarded this ship and we've met uh, a bunch of colorful crew But the captain has admonished uh, Dr. Doppler for giving too many details of their trip uh, out in the open because they've also hired the crew and most of the crew seems to be uh, sketchy piratey types. And she's already sort of anticipating some sort of problem with them. And so she's like, you need to be quiet. And she's sort of insulting Dr. Doppler's intelligence. Dr. Doppler thinks highly of his own intelligence. And she's sort of making him out to be an idiot for his lack of social cues. And, you know, this romantic rub between them is, I can't believe she would talk about me that way or whatever. You know, we know then that they're going to fall in love. 
But anyway, Jim gets uh, basically remanded to the kitchen, and that is where John Silver is working. And John Silver is the cyborg that we've been warned about. This is a really cool character design, I think, here. He, you know, we've taken that sort of pirate idea of like, oh, he's got a peg leg, and now we're going to run with that. And like, not only does he have a peg leg, but he's also got this crazy arm that's like got like a utility knife capabilities of being able to change into all these different knives. And, you know, he's employing this to great effect as a chef cutting up carrots and whatnot. Very fun character. He's got like one, you know, cyborg eye and everything. I just enjoy all of the different things that they're doing with his design. And they're really employing the CG well with his cybernetic parts and all that. Yeah, that's right. The, everything that's cybernetic on him is CG and the rest of him is traditionally animated. And um, I think that this is like the most seamless version of that that we've seen in any of these movies we've talked about definitely and the lead uh, character animator is a guy named glenn Keane, who's one of the all-time greats he um, animated ariel and the little mermaid and he's just done all these other famous characters and so he's kind of known for really graceful movements and, and amazing emotional acting and you see all of that on display with with the, the john silver character it's really i think probably the most successful element of the whole movie is how they fused all that animation technology and it just really works in concert beautifully and again i want to highlight brian murray's performance as the character because we do sort of understand right away and if you're familiar with the source material that like you know john silver is complicated in that sense of where he he's a, ostensibly a villain i mean he is essentially the villain of the story right yeah he's also got this warm side to him where he kind of immediately sort of takes to Jim and he gives him a hard time first and makes him swab the deck and everything. But he's the character that sees that Jim has potential. And, you know, he sort of mentions it right away. Like one day the light of the sails is going to be shining off you and I just want to be there to see it. You know, he's saying these sort of things that, you know, I can really see would endear him to this kid, you know, and, and the way that this actor delivers all of those lines. I mean, he does just such a great job at that. And then he does a great job when he's being villainous and, and conniving and all that sort of stuff. I just think he's spectacular. You know, if they would have made this movie now or like a DreamWorks, they would have cast some big name person just for the name value. Yeah. But I think this is the case where they just got the right actor for the job and his voice fits the character really well. And, and he does handle those turns between very warm and outgoing and then all of a sudden becoming you know quite sinister he, he does all that so nimbly it's pretty cool to see him turn on a dime like that i think that is a lost art now for that very reason i mean i know there's lots of very talented voice actors working in animation but you know when it comes to these sort of big movies you're right they populate it with famous people i mean this would be it'd be pete davidson today and you just you recognize the voice and you know who it is and in this case like i don't know this guy from adam but i don't know i just think his performance is just tremendous we should mention that there are some other colorful characters uh, in this crew, um, some of which are pirates who we will find are in league with John Silver. Most notably, Scroop, who is this sort of 
spidery bug alien voiced by the great Michael Wincott, who is just a character actor who I adore. I was so happy to see him recently in Nope. Just love this guy. And and he sort of disappeared for a while in the 2000s, and he seems to be making a minor comeback in his career. And I'm just delighted by it because I love him. I'm happy about that. He's got a great voice. Yeah, his voice is perfect for this kind of character. And he does a great pirate you know accent or whatever like you recognize his voice but he's doing a character it's not just michael wincott being michael wincott and the character design is great you know he's you know the most obviously villainous character i mean right off the bat you know he's menacing jim and he's got these lobster claws and we know right away that this is a bad dude also, we have the first mate, uh, who is this sort of upstanding rock man called Mr. Arrow, who uh, is going to play an important part in the story later on when they encounter this supernova storm and Jim is tasked with securing the crew's ropes, but Scroop serendipitously cuts Mr. Arrow's rope, sending him off to space and die. And uh, Jim sort of takes the blame for that as it's his fault, even though he knows he did his job. It's a really pretty amazing sequence, you know, in, instead of having a pirate ship going through a squall, it's basically this this spaceship going by a black hole. The lighting is really cool, a lot of red tones, a lot of good action. And it's it's pretty sad and pretty heartbreaking when, when Mr. Arrow gets cut loose like that and just yeah. disappears into the dark, empty void of space. It's one of the times where I feel like the space setting works well in Treasure Planet. There are other times where it just feels like the ship is floating through colorful clouds, but not necessarily, you know, outer space with stars and, and things like that. Yeah. But I, I think this is one one scene where they really got it right. They definitely play it fast and loose with what's sort of going on here in terms of physics. It's explained to us at one point that there is some sort of gravity field on the deck. We're assuming that that's also providing them with breathable air or whatever in the vacuum of space. Because it's sort of like it's in outer space, but it's not really outer space because we're still seeing like blue skies in some areas and whatnot. Yeah, and there are these creatures that almost look like a pod of whales that are are floating alongside the ship. And how are they doing that in the cold vacuum of space it's i don't know if we're, we're being the crotchety old guys again and and you know if kids go with that more easily but i i do think my 10 year old was kind of thrown by it too and it's just the the rules of the world were never quite set up to my satisfaction yeah and i do think that kids now have kind of become more sophisticated about that kind of thing and even i think probably back then this would have been something that would have been a rub for some kids. Um, Matt, uh, my co-host on the Phantom in the Shadow podcast, brought up the fact that, like, you know, his son who loves superhero movies just couldn't hang with the Phantom because you know it's a guy in a purple suit. <laughs> when I was a kid, a guy in a purple suit and a domino mask was perfectly acceptable as a superhero. Totally fine. Yeah, pulp hero. But for kids who have grown up on like the more realistic and grounded marvel characters from the movies are like are you kidding me this guy looks ridiculous might as well be wearing a barrel and suspenders 
it's yeah, it's pretty old fashioned now. So, I mean, I think you can apply that same logic perhaps to an ideal like this where, you know, kids who are raised on Star Wars are going to be like, space doesn't work like that. Yeah, it's it's kind of it's inconsistent because the the opening that we like so much with the um, the storybook of the pirate, that looks like it's actually happening in space. And all the stuff in Jim's home planet, it's like a more grounded setting. And even like the spaceport that they go to, it looks like like a place where there is like an atmosphere. It doesn't look like it's in outer space. But then for the rest of the movie, sometimes it looks like they're in space. Sometimes it looks like they're in some just misty setting. It's it's kind of hard to track. So, yeah, um, you know, we have that montage that we sort of touched upon already to, with the Johnny Resnick Goo Goo Dolls the sounding song but the important thing to sort of touch upon there is this you know developing bond between jim and john silver during this montage we see jim remembering his dad going off to some ship and he's like running after him and dad flies away on the ship and so you know of course drawing direct parallels now to this burgeoning surrogate father and son relationship he's having with John Silver as they, you know, he takes them out on one of the dinghies or whatever, and they go flying around in space together and do stuff around the ship and that sort of thing. It's presented as like a flashback with kind of this sepia tone, but the design of the characters matched the way they looked in, in the opening where Jim's a little boy. And I really feel like this was originally played as as an actual dramatic moment and not as a flashback and for whatever reason they just changed it and and made it inserted it as a flashback later and i think it loses a lot of the emotional punch that it, it could have had the other way well and that stands to reason that they would set a pop song to it as a montage as yeah. just like let's just get this information out beneath a song that we can market there's a lot of marketing involved here unfortunately kind of marring this moment i don't think this is actually bad this montage i just think unfortunately the pop song for me kind of ruins it for goo goo dolls fans probably not i mean i heard the the goo goo dolls not that long ago in in concert they're out here in california and you know they sounded pretty good and they played all the hits and uh and you know it was, it was a good show did they play this they did not play this one i said they played all the hits so unfortunately <laughs> you know if atlantis came out maybe two years too late i feel like this movie came out maybe like 10 years too late you know yeah if, if this had come out in 93 or 94 and or i don't even know if the google dolls were big then but let's say it came out in 96 or something i think the song probably would have found more of an audience i think the movie would have found more of an audience too you know what we're going to learn through this part of the story is that john silver is the cyborg pirate in question Jim is chasing the very annoying Morph around the ship and Morph hides in this barrel and Jim climbs in the barrel and then Silver and his crew of pirates are having a conversation about how they're going to stage their mutiny. Jim is sort of heartbroken by this revelation that Silver really is a bad guy and he's going to betray him and screw up this whole expedition yeah and this is kind of um i guess with mr arrow out of the way the pirates are poised to to really take over the ship i forget how exactly but silver finds out that jim is in the barrel and jim escapes by kind of sabotaging silver's peg leg there's kind of like a yes. like a hydraulic element in it and he, he short circuits that 
And so then, what is it? Uh, Jim and Doppler and the captain all escape on the, uh, it's like a space dinghy. Yep. And uh, Jim thinks he has the map ball with him, but it's not the map ball. It's that bastard morph. Right. Well, it's this whole extended sequence where they're trying to get off the ship that the pirates have taken over. But Jim has to go back onto the ship to get the map and he gets the map, but we're going to find out it's actually Morph. So he doesn't really have the map. But yeah, so it's extra frustrating because we've gone through all this sort of like suspenseful shenanigans just to get Morph, essentially. But yeah, they get off on the space dinghy. And then one of the pirates like shoots a laser cannonball at yep. the dinghy and it like breaks it in half. And the Captain Smollett is wounded not terribly but she basically just sort of hurts herself in that explosion so she's going to be kind of taken off the board for the rest of the movie only for dr doppler to care for her in an unnatural way yes which forms the bond of their love we're now at treasure planet we're there uh the skiff crash lands on treasure planet and i really love the design of treasure planet it sort of reminds me of um the french film fantastic planet there's all these sort of giant oversized sort of mushroom looking trees i'm a sucker for that kind of stuff anything that looks like a yes album cover like <laughs> i'm in that's that's the world you want to visit avatar gets pretty close to a yes album cover and even though i'm not a huge fan of avatar the story i do like pandora's design it's got floating uh islands and all that kind of cool shit yeah sure so at this point jim realizes that it's morph and not the map and they are being hunted by the rest of the pirates who also don't realize that it's Morph and not the map, I guess. And so they need to find a place to hide. And this is where we meet my favorite character in this movie, the Daffy Robot Ben, biomechanical energy... I forget what the N stands for. Yes, yes, I, that you got correct. <laughs> it's an acronym, and it's uh, Ben is played by Martin Short at at his most Martin Shortiest and and Jerry Lewisest. I love it. It's great. I love it too, and I am a big fan of Martin Short. I think his Clifford is a unassailable masterpiece <laughs> of comedy. If you have never seen Clifford, I highly recommend it. Not the Big Red Dog. Do not confuse his Clifford with the Big Red Dog. I'm talking about the 90s movie in which he plays a child, even though he's a middle-aged man at the time. <laughs> they do a lot of like forced perspective tricks to make him look even smaller. <laughs> like he's this nightmarish child that everybody just accepts as a little boy. Charles Grodin is in it, right? Yeah, Charles yeah. <laughs> Grodin is the beleaguered like father figure that has to deal with this nightmarish homunculus that's making his life a misery. It's really, really underappreciated. I highly recommend it. It was panned at the time. Everybody thought it was awful, but I'm here to tell you Clifford is a masterpiece. I'm a sucker for Martin Short, and, and it's his. I think his appearance at this part in the movie is like a, a much-needed shot in the arm. Definitely. You know, it's getting kind of heavy there, and now all of a sudden it's 
it's funny and and his he's sort of got a little bit of a tragic backstory too and it also ties into the mystery of treasure planet so there's a lot of good stuff going on it kind of feels like we're back on track now ben is the rug that pulls the room together so to speak to (laughs) reference big lebowski i also just want to Shout out that Martin Short is in um, that show, uh, Only Murders in the Building. Jen and I started to watch that recently. And he's my favorite part of that show, too. I just I can't get enough of Martin Short. I, I hope we get to see a lot more of him before his time in this planet is over. But yeah, I love this character. He is portrayed as basically being insane. But the reason why he's so crazy is because there's this plate on his head that contained his primary memory unit, I believe is what he calls it. Mm -hmm. And that has been removed. So he's understandably scattered. A little scattered. Maybe not the most sympathetic portrayal of mental illness, you might say. (laughs) But I mean, I do believe there is a character, Ben, from the story that's like a pirate that has been shipwrecked on the island and has gone crazy from loneliness or whatever so he is an analog to a character in the actual original story right yeah i mean i love it you know he's doing like you said he's doing his like kind of jerry lewisy kind of shtick and you know he talking a lot and then he'll sort of scream out something and the whole nine but i don't know i love him he's my favorite thing in the movie i'm here for it yeah he's the best part and again this is where the cg is blended really well with the animation because he's mostly a cg character aside from a few details right or is he cell animation no i i think i was looking at him trying to figure it out and the body definitely seems like cg but kind of the way the the face is animated with so much squash and stretch like i wonder if that part is 2d or i'm not sure but it it works really well so yeah ben uh provides them with a place to hold up while they're trying to figure out what they're going to do they need to sneak back onto the legacy to steal the uh map sphere i I don't know if we mentioned that the name of the ship is the legacy but it's that's what it's called it's the uh rls legacy i guess for robert lewis stevenson which is a nice little nod ah we also discover here ben basically goes to like open a window so to speak to get some air in the place and we realize that the entire planet is a giant space station or something yeah it's a giant machine there's all these you know, miles and miles and miles of tunnels that go underneath the planet. And that's how they are able to sneak past the pirates who have sort of camped out outside of Ben's home. And like at this point, uh, Silver has delivered an ultimatum like, you need to give me the map or I'm going to come in there and kill your friends, basically. This is how they're going to be able to sneak past them and get back on to the legacy. It's also setting up where the treasure is going to be located, because if the planet is hollow, that would stand to reason that the treasure is somewhere in there. Yeah, and um, I think now is this kind of good, fun, suspenseful scene where Jim and and Ben and Morph, unfortunately, are, are sneaking back onto the legacy and Jim's trying to be stealthy and Martin Short is yelling, and, you know, lady, you know, basically that kind of stuff. And uh, Scroop is uh, Michael Wincott's characters on there waiting for them. And there's kind of a very cool sci-fi scene where the lights are cut out in the ship and then uh, kind of like the backup generator kicks on. There's all this red light 
and it's just Jim holding one of these pistols that looks kind of like a pirate pistol but shoots lasers, and Scroop is sort of hunting him menacingly from the shadows. This is all happening because Ben is, you know, going through this circuit board or whatever of wires, trying to disable the cannons so that they can't blow up Ben's lair or whatever. That's what Silver threatens him with. He's like, I'm going to take the cannons of the ship and I'm going to blast you to you know, Kingdom Come or whatever. They have two missions here. One is to find the map and one is to disable the cannons. And that's why Ben is mucking around with the, the wires. And then at one point he clips the wires that uh, control the gravity field. And so Jim and Scroop, who are sort of fighting on the deck, both go flying up into space, I guess. (laughs) I guess. It just looks like the sky outside my house. We'll call it space. And uh, yeah, Scroop ends up getting tangled in the pirate flag that they've erected, and he suffers the same fate as Mr. Arrow. It's kind of fun, like, you know, the Disney movies get dinged a lot for like a bad guy plummeting to their doom and screaming the whole way, and you were sort of talking about that a little bit in, in Atlantis. And this is a, a bit of an inversion of that. Instead of falling down, he's falling up. Right. Still screaming away and still to his death. But, uh, you know, nice to mix it up. So they do find the map, which has been stashed in a coil of rope. And they return to Ben's lair. But at this point, when they arrive, Silver and his crew members have come there and they've got... Uh, Doppler and the captain tied up. This is where Silver's like, all right, now give me the map. And then, you know, Jim presents the sphere and he opens up the map. And so the map, when opened, basically creates this sort of like laser light in the sky that directs them to where the treasure is going to be. And, you know, Silver's like, great, take the map and tie Jim up with the rest of them. But then Jim closes the sphere because he knows how to open and close the sphere, a detail I did not catch the last time we had this discussion. That's how Jim bargains his way into this final mission to find the treasure he's like you need me to open the map i guess yeah and this is kind of i remember we watched um cutthroat island and like a lot of pirate movies sort of have the scene where the pirates go onto the island and they're foraging through it and have machetes and they're chopping down all the trees and the overgrowth in their way they're sort of doing that on on this uh planet you know with some nice little sci-fi twists along the way and Eventually they find that, what do they do? They follow the beam and it kind of leads to the X marks the spot, but the the beam just dead ends. The beam just dead ends off this cliffside, basically. And so they're like, well, where does it go? And I like that all the dumb pirates at this point are just like, we'll just throw Jim off into the, (laughs) off the cliff or whatever, like really (laughs) short sighted. I've definitely known some people in my lifetime that when faced with frustration are just ready to burn it all down. Like they don't even want to try to figure this thing out. It kind of reminds me of the scene in The Hobbit when they get to the door that leads into the mountain or whatever and they don't figure it out right away and all the the dwarves are just like, all right, forget it. We're leaving. Yeah. <laughs> like, Turn back. Like, this is go. the whole point of everything. You're going to give up that easily? <laughs> There's got to be some sort of trick to this. Come on. But yeah, so at the, what Jim figures out is that there is a, a portal that's going to open up and actually lead them inside the planet to where the treasure is. 
And that's how they're going to gain access to it. Yeah, one, one of those pirates that's frustrated just shoves Jim to the ground, which is kind of funny. But when he's down there, he sees there's like a, a spot in the ground right. to plug in the map ball. And when he does that, it opens up the, the portal. Yeah, it opens up this sort of holographic map that then, you know, you can press on this map. And, you know, you I guess what we're seeing here is the whole galaxy in which this story is set. You can press on any location and a portal will open up to that location. And I, you know, I think he opens up a portal to like the spaceport from where they came and all that. And then Silver's like, well, what good does any of this do me? We still don't know where the treasure is. And then Jim's like points to the center of the map where they are and that opens up the portal to inside the planet yeah and it also explains how the pirate flint was able to get around the galaxy so quickly and and steal the treasures from all those different spaceships he was using this portal technology to top all over the place I think it's really smart sci-fi stuff. I love this stuff. Again, this is the kind of thing that'll win me over too, is give me some sort of portal to another time or place or universe, and I'm happy. I, I mean, I like portals. I co-wrote the hit movie Portals, which was a huge, massive success. <laughs> You're one of the world's leading experts on portals. Yes, you will see my name in the credits in IMDb for the movie Portals, which, as I've said, was a massive success. And um, yeah, so I'm a, I'm an expert on these sort of things. Anyway, um, they go inside the planet and they find um, more treasure than they could have ever imagined. And we also see the pirate ship of um, Flint. So Ben and Jim go up to the pirate ship while all of the pirates are, you know, gathering up the loot, so to speak. And we find the actual skeletal body of Flint sitting in a chair. And there's this, you know, great scene where uh, Ben is trying to remember some crucial piece of information. Like he's like, I, there's just something about this place that I just can't remember. And then Jim notices that Flint is actually holding in his hand this piece of like plating. He pulls it out of his hand. Sure enough, it's Ben's memory plate or whatever. And he puts it back in his head and then Ben can remember everything. <laughs> he remembers that Flint booby trapped the entire inside of the planet. I am a little fuzzy about then exactly what happens. Like some big space laser just comes out of nowhere or something. Yeah. I mean, up to this point, the pirates are, are basically swimming Scrooge McDuck style in just this vast ocean of treasure. But I think now is like where where the the idea that the treasure planet is mechanical starts to right. pay off, and so like all that machinery turns on, and it's just going to self destruct the planet, and so then it's a mad dash to to get everyone out of there with as much as you can grab before the whole place goes kaboom. Right, and this is where Silver redeems himself. You know, he has the opportunity to get out of the planet and get away with his treasure. But Jim is still like clinging to some Flint's pirate ship or something. And Silver stops and actually saves Jim and pulls him aboard the legacy. It's kind of in keeping with this character who's a part earlier in the movie where he, he could have taken a shot at Jim when he's escaping right. from, from the legacy. And he 
at the last second, you know, kind of wavers and lets Jim get away. So, you know, they're, they're definitely paying off their relationship in a big way here. Yeah, totally. It works. And so our last sort of action sequence we're going to get is they're trying to get the ship far away from the exploding planet. Dr. Doppler is behind the wheel and he does the calculations as to how long it's going to take the planet to explode and they're not going to be able to get clear in time. So Jim realizes that the best way to get out of there is to go back through the portal into another place in space. Unfortunately, the portal has been set to the inside of the planet, which is a fiery ball of hell explosion. (laughs) So the only way to rectify this situation is for Jim to fashion himself a makeshift uh, rocket skateboard and try to get out to the key to the portal, that holographic key to the portal, change the portal so that they're going into another place in space. And uh, that way they will be able to go through and be saved. We're paying off our, you know, opening scene with him on this rocket uh, sailboard. Silver helps him sort of weld a rocket to this piece of debris and Jim has to make a run for this portal thing. At one point the rocket sputters out and he's falling into a crevice in the planet, but then he jams the rocket against the wall and it reignites by a spark and he saves the day. He achieves his goal. He hits the right button on the thing and they all sail through to safety before the explosion. That was such a neat beat of like when the the engine on his rocket sled is is failed him and and he just kind of grinds it against the side of this this canyon as he's falling down it and that's what reignites it. I've never seen that before or since. I just thought it was a really cool moment. And then he kind of hangs ten or does an ollie or some sort of skating thing. I don't know, but he he goes upside down and pushes the location of the spaceport yeah. on the, the map, which we'd seen him do before. And that's where they all wind up right before Treasure Planet explodes. It's pretty cool, I have to say. Yeah. My inner 13-year-old boy is cheering at that moment. They are safe now, um, but like, you know, a few minutes earlier, Captain Smollett made it clear to Long John Silver that she intends to hand him over to the authorities for his betrayal. So he's sort of quietly trying to sneak away on a lifeboat or whatever the equivalent of a spaceship lifeboat is. Jim catches him down there before he manages to escape and they have a, you know, a, a warm exchange where... Jim basically allows him to go and they hug and they both get a little teary eyed. I didn't get teary eyed necessarily, but I do think that the emotion here in this moment is perfectly fine and effective. Sure. Silver talks about having some oil in his cybernetic eye, (laughs) like a tear. And uh, Morph is there. Yeah. Horrifying Morph morphs into like a crying baby or something like that. You know, ruining everything. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that scene would have, I think, played a little better without Morph. But before Silver goes, he gives Jim some gems that he managed to pocket so that Jim can give it to his mom and she can build a new inn, replacing the one that Silver <laughs> burned to the ground. I mean, it was the very least he could do. I mean, are we to assume that the pirates all sort of stashed some 
like money in their pockets or whatever. I mean, cause there's so much gold and stuff. You could have easily filled your pockets with some riches. I think so. I mean, we never see like a shot of them doing that, but we know a lot of them survived cause they're kind of tied up and in, in the brig right. of the legacy ship. I don't know why they're tied up and, and silver isn't, but you know, we, we go with it. Sadly, I think all of those alien pirates probably ended up being hung by the <laughs> authorities. <laughs> They cut that scene out too, the hanging scene. <laughs> but Disney did not cut the hanging scene out of Pirates of the Caribbean 3. That opens with like a child being hung, a pirate child being hung, which kind of makes me love that movie. Anyway, I digress. I think a character also gets shot in the head in that movie. And there's like <laughs> a very clear insert shot of like this dead character with a bullet hole in their head. Like, why? Pirates of the Caribbean 3 is pretty brutal, honestly. Yeah. So, yeah, in the end, um, Jim's mom gets a new in and we see good times happening there. Doppler and the captain have their abomination children and everybody's having cake that's being served by uh, Ben. The weird octopus lady is playing a shanty jig um, on the stage and Jim arrives home as a sailor. Uh, Captain Smollett has recommended him to the Academy whatever the hell they are and now he is uh, um, a sailor. With a new haircut. Yes, with a much more reasonable and adult haircut. And as everybody dances a jig, Jim looks up to the window and sees a cloud formation that looks a lot like silver smiling down upon him with a bright, shining star of an eye. So it's like, did he die? Yeah. Is he like Mufasa? <laughs> It is very Mufasa-like, and yeah, no, he didn't die. I mean, unless we're to assume that he went on to have another pirate adventure that got him killed. He had a massive coronary as he was sailing away from Jim. Yeah. <laughs> Minutes later. Yeah, he did look a little heavy, so I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. So yeah, that's the end of the movie. Uh, we get another bad uh, John Resnick song, and we are out. I thought it was the same song. <laughs> I, I don't know. No, it's a different one. <laughs> oh, okay. So yeah, as we said, um, the budget for this movie was $140 million, uh, so it was more than Atlantis, and it grossed a piddling 38 in the U.S. and mm. only 110 worldwide, so it didn't even recoup its losses worldwide, which is too bad because I think it's an enjoyable sci-fi fantasy animated feature. I don't think we need to talk about why it failed uh, again, because I think we covered it in the Atlantis review. So what I'm going to ask you instead is of the two films, which one do you prefer? That's a tough one. I think I prefer Atlantis mm -hmm. a little more, but Treasure Planet is not without its charms and they both took really big swings and i think what i like the most about them is even though they're considered failures upon release like so many of the movies that you cover on your show they've kind of earned these fan bases over the years and now we can look back on them and see like you know in in the case of um, treasure planet in particular the artistry is really extraordinary like there's some really next level animation going there and i feel like it's kind of a lost art i mean there's great CG animated movies too, but it's, it's not quite the same thing. Like you really feel the love in the rendering of like long John Silver 
and all his movements, you know, and, and that, that montage where he and Jim are kind of doing the father and son things around the ship and going out sailing together. Like you feel a lot of heart and all that. So I guess I would say Atlantis for me is the more enjoyable watch, but Treasure Planet is maybe the more beautiful animation wise of the two movies. I'm going to go opposite. I like Treasure Planet more. It's largely because it's just more in my wheelhouse genre wise. Like, I mean, not that Atlantis isn't. I love adventure movies too, but like, I love pirates, as you know. And I love space opera, and it's a fun melding of those two things. I like the fact that it's kind of just taking a classic story and updating it with sci-fi conceits. I do really like the character of Jim, even with his obnoxious skate punk look. I just find (laughs) him endearing. I find the character of Silver to be like truly wonderful and a great villain, I like the characters in Atlantis too, but like I, I like Silver better than I like the James Garner character in Atlantis. It, it just comes down to sure. preference for for characters. And it's funny because you were saying that you think you find Treasure Planet more beautiful than Atlantis. And I'm again, I'm going to go opposite with you on that. I, I kind of find Atlantis to be a little more beautiful. I think that comes down to mostly the Mignola design elements and i kind of like the color motifs of atlantis more i like those sort of aqua tones and and you know there's some purples and stuff like that treasure planet kind of has a more like bright look to it and i mean i think it fits the movie but like if i had to just put one on and not pay attention to it and have it be just sort of background i think i would choose atlantis just because i like the color schemes more (laughs) i mean it's pure aesthetic i like these colors better than those colors type of thing fair enough yeah i you know i mean these are the things that i wish disney plus would now make shows out of like they're doing with with willow which i don't think was a huge huge hit when it came out i'd love to be on that episode did you do willow already i haven't done it i'd love to have you on to do willow hint 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 but i i love that one and i'm really heartened to see they're doing a series for it and the trailer looks pretty cool i think the trailer looks like a lot of fun actually i got psyched when i saw that trailer i was like oh man this looks good it looks better than the movie yeah no I, i that was more exciting to me out of d23 than like indiana jones or any of the marvel stuff personally but I wish they would find a way to go back and revisit some of these animated properties because I feel like Atlantis, you know, when we were talking about that, we were saying it was trying to accomplish a lot in a pretty short runtime. Yeah. And it wouldn't be great if it was like a six part, you know, Disney plus series that picks up later Milo and Kida's kids or something like that. And same with treasure planet, you know, it'd be nice to revisit these worlds and maybe dial in a, a little differently on some of the things that weren't successful in the movie versions. And then the things that were great, keep those and, and just give us more of them. Well, I know the state of animated uh, streaming shows is in uh, a kind of weird place right now, unfortunately, but there are some things that have come out recently that have been big successes like arcane have you had a chance to check that out oh sure yeah i mean that show looks amazing and that's doing a combination of i mean i'm sure it's all actually cg but it's all cg but they tune shade over it to make some of the characters look like they're 2d right so i mean i feel like that 
aesthetic is becoming popular. So like I could honestly see going back to something like Atlantis and making a series out of it because, you know, if something like Arcane can be a big hit, then, you know, Disney has these IPs they could resurrect and give them similar treatments. Well, let me put it this way. I'd rather see them do an animated Disney Plus series than do a live action remake of an animated movie like they've done with pretty much all their hits. Yeah, that trend has got to die, please. Like, And they're always disappointing. Like, They're never good. But the problem is they make a ton of money, so they're not going to stop. Yeah. No, and it, it's like... I don't even know how you figure out the credits on those movies because so many of them are just beat for beat remakes of the original animated ones, Yeah, you know, and it's, it's like those, all the animators kind of did the heavy lifting way back when. I don't know. It's, it's tough. I mean, I, I, overall, I enjoy both these movies and I feel like they're kind of some of the last entries and what's become a kind of forgotten art form, which is like 2D animation. I mean, I think Princess and the Frog was maybe the last 2D animated movie that Disney did. I don't know that we'll ever get back to it. I hope we do. Yeah, and I appreciate the opportunity to visit these movies because, you know, I was too old to see them when they came out, and I'm not really a diehard animation fan, so I didn't seek them out, even though I was too old to see them at the time. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, I actually really enjoyed them and find them to be a treat to watch and i would have never done it were it not for uh this podcast and uh having a co-host who comes from an animation background who is enthusiastic about them and uh even though we had to do this twice it wasn't uh at all painful no it's a joy to see these movies again and talk about them with you thanks for letting me come back all right well i'm gonna hug my cyborg surrogate father and get on my rocket sailboard and fly that shit through a space portal <laughs> that one's top five for you that's a really good outro <laughs> That about does it today for Tentpole Trauma. If you like what you heard, check out our social media presence on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just look for Tentpole Trauma. That was easy, wasn't it? If you like us, hit subscribe and leave us a sterling review on iTunes, if you dare. If you really like us, head over to Patreon.com and get involved in one of our fabulous tiers. You'll be glad you did. Want to communicate with Tentpole Trauma? Send an email to tentpoletrauma at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And who knows, one day you may even get your email read on one of our shows. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll see you real soon.